Well, good morning, everybody. It is really good to be back with you today. Um, it's been a while. I've been out the last three Sundays, and I want to start, um, before we get into any of the sermon or any of that, by thanking Dante and Paul and Ivy uh, for preaching while I was gone. This has nothing to do with the sermon that's coming up, but I want to add something that um, I thought about a lot um, when I was out of town and that I've been thinking about a lot this week. And that is that I am... I am genuinely amazed by what this church is becoming. Um, I've been the pastor here for just over five years, and almost all of that time, I realized when I was, I was on vacation these past couple weeks, almost all of that time has been spent in some kind of crisis. <laughs> um, and through those crises, we have tried, um, I've tried and our leadership team has tried as hard as we can to create a culture here at Revolution that is about curiosity, and it is about experiencing belonging, and that is ultimately about choice. It is a place where you feel like free to take another step with this thing. And to do that, we don't put on like a big show with like smoke and lights or anything, and we and we don't have tons of people here on Sunday morning, like hundreds of volunteers running around and doing every job. We have done what we can to keep this church as simple as we can. Um, and the reason for that is because we believe that church is simple at the end of the day. That it's, what this is, right, is it's a community of people who are exploring and pursuing a common faith. Like, that's what this is. And we want you to be here, not because you're afraid that things are going to fall apart if you're not here, but because this is a community that gives you life. And now, after five years of various crises and saying all these things in sermons over and over and over again to where most of you are like, please don't do this again. <laughs> and also you're aware that I'm eating into sermon time right now. This is like stretching. Anyways, um, but now to kind of see how resilient and how communal and how cooperative and, and all the reports that I heard from, from the last couple of weeks, how encouraging this church has become, well, like, the truth is, this is an answer to five years of crisis prayers. Like, we are becoming the church that we've had in our hearts for five years. Um, and we all share the labor here. We all share a simple vision. And we all share the gifts that we have and the places that we can. And the biggest thing I learned when I was on my summer vacation in October um, is that I am not, like, the key cog in some big machine anymore, if I ever was. But I certainly am not now that what I am is I am a part of the generous family that is doing church together. And that is awesome. Um, anyway, I wanted to start with that. But after three weeks off, I'm also excited to talk about God's stuff too. So we're going to do that. <laughs> anyway. um, this morning, what we're doing is we're continuing in our longest series of the year, which is a series on the Gospel of Luke. And the series has been called Fulfilled, and that word is actually kind of becoming the crux of our conversation today. That's what I want to talk about. What do we mean when we say that the gospel story fulfills anything? How does Jesus fulfill something? What meaning does this word fulfill carry within it? And why is it still so important to us as a church existing so many years later after the things that were fulfilled may have been fulfilled? And I've got three points to kind of talk us through that. And my first is this. 
is that I, I believe the biblical sense of the word fulfillment requires that we understand the story, that we understand specifically the Bible's story. Not our story, not the kinds of stories we're used to, but this story. Now, don't worry. Again, some of you hear that and you're like, ooh, he's going to re-summarize all of Scripture for 15 minutes. No, I'm not doing that. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a claim. And the claim is this. And the claim is that our culture and every culture that has ever existed has a gut sense of how narratives and how stories are supposed to go. It's different from culture to culture. It's different over time. But we in America, in the 21st century, like we have this gut sense of how stories work. But if we're going to really pursue a deeper understanding to the best of our ability of this other story, of the story that God is telling, one of the things we have to do is we have to pay attention to how that story might be different from the stories that we feel in our guts. It might operate differently. A funny little story to get us started. And my family and I were out on our trip these last few weeks hiking around Utah, which is where we were. Um, sorry about this. I bet this didn't happen to any of the previous speakers. It's because I'm so animated. I'm stomping around. Um, when we were out hiking around Utah, Meredith and I had to come up with some creative ways to keep our, particularly our youngest son distracted on these hikes. So if you've hiked with kids or camped with kids, particularly camping in the winter or in the fall, where there's only like 11 hours of daylight. So I want you to imagine like I'm camping and it's dark at like 6 p.m. and it's gonna stay dark till like 7 a.m. I don't wanna sleep 13 hours, ever. And like figuring out what to do and like keep them entertained is hard. So, so that they wouldn't fixate on how much sleep they were getting and so they wouldn't fixate on how far they were hiking or how tired their legs are, about halfway through the trip, um, Meredith decided she was going to start telling the kids a long story that she's just going to tell from memory, right? Now, Meredith's not a natural storyteller, but she was like, I could do this. There's a story I know. And the story begins like this. Once upon a time, a young girl named Bella moved in with her father in a little town in Washington State called Forks. <laughs> and she wasn't excited for this move because she had read that Forks was the rainiest town in all of America. And she didn't have any friends there except this one boy that she met when she was younger. But on her first day of high school, she was in the cafeteria and she saw a boy that she thought was really handsome and mysterious. And she learned his name was Edward Cullen. <laughs> that is right. The, the, the wife of the pastor of your church spent hours and hours of our hikes and in the tent telling our children the complete story of the Twilight Saga. <laughs> now... Like, this cracked me up in particular because if you know much about Meredith, you know that this makes sense because she loves YA fantasy. This is, like, her favorite kind of book to read, and she's an avid reader. And if you know much about me, you know that I have a running joke with her every time she finishes a new book. And the way it goes is this. She'll say, I finished the book, and I'll say, oh. And she'll tell me the title, and I'll say, oh, is that the one that's about the teenage girl with either divorced or deceased parents who moves to a new town where she's not the prettiest or the most popular girl, but then she meets a mysterious boy who she finds both dangerous and attractive, and it turns out that he's afraid and interested in her too. And then she learns that he has a supernatural power, and then she learns that she also has supernatural powers and that her powers might actually be the key to saving the world. <laughs> now, my, my point is obviously, like, these are all the same stories. They're always the same stories. But her point is that they still work. Like she reads them because they work. 
Now, why do these stories, why the Twilight stories work? Well, they, they work ultimately because they match up with another story that literally everyone believes about themselves when they are in high school, or even more particularly when they're out of high school and reflecting on being on high, in high school. And that is the story that they are not the most popular or attractive kid, that they're an outsider, but if people got to know them, then people would realize that they are unique and they are special in their own ways. This is the story everybody tells about themselves when they reflect on being in high school. Even the kids that you thought were popular or attractive believed this story about themselves. And even the kids that, like every clique, right? Every clique that you made fun of in the cafeteria, that clique believed they were the breakfast club, right? That they were the real deal and that your clique was a bunch of fakes. Like this is how high school is. We're all Bella. And like none of us believes that we're ever. That's the narrative of being a high schooler in this country. Now, I bring all this up because if we're going to talk about fulfillment in a story, in any story, we have to recognize what the thing is that we're hoping for. We have to identify where stories like the one we're telling tend to go. And so in YA fantasy stories like Twilight, the entry point, the identification point, is always going to be with the outsider who is going to learn to trust new friends and to believe in themselves. That's the hero's journey, right? So fulfillment happens in the story when those things happen, when the character finds friends, like when the character forgives their parents that they're mad at, when they fall in love, when they discover their powers. And we read a story like Twilight looking forward to that point because we know the point's coming. That's the kind of story it is. And because getting to that is the point of reading it. But what do we do when the story we're trying to understand isn't one that is so obviously about us? Because in Jesus' story, we're not the main characters. And that changes how we understand what fulfillment means. Over the last three weeks, you've learned about Jesus' parables and his teachings in the second half of Luke's gospel that he shares on his way to Jerusalem. On his way to Jerusalem. That's been the background of all that we've talked about since chapter 9 of Luke. And that is that this prophet, this potential Messiah figure from the north of Judea is heading south to the temple where the Messiah is meant to go. It is a Messiah story that moves from north to south, and not just to south, but to Jerusalem and to the temple. We know this because way back in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, we read this. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead. And as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, leave Jerusalem. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now that first part is critical because Jesus is going to Jerusalem because the time has approached for him to do the Messiah thing, to be taken up into heaven. That's part of the messianic prophecy in Jewish culture, and it was the key to identifying the story that Jesus was setting out to tell. It's the thing everybody recognized. The minute you guys heard the name Bella when I was telling that story earlier, you were like, oh, Twilight. The same thing is true. The minute we hear like prophet Messiah, everybody in Jerusalem or everybody in Judea is like, oh, I know. I know the story. I can't believe the story is being told now. We've been waiting on this for centuries. Like, here it is, the story. 
And so Israel had waited on this day when God was going to do this thing and send a savior to the people. And that they knew the job of this savior, this hero figure, is to bring them to freedom and to bring them to holiness. These two things that they've lacked through their long history, freedom and holiness. And the instant Jesus turns his feet in the direction of Jerusalem, everybody knows this narrative. He is the Messiah. He's going there to bring us freedom and holiness. He's going there to save us. And they're excited because they know these stories. But as you found out over the last three weeks, the wrinkles start with how long it takes Jesus to get there. He doesn't just beeline at the 50 miles between Galilee and Jerusalem. He takes a long, long time. He takes the bulk of the book of of Luke to do this. And not only that, but as he's making his way on this journey that you could make in four days, that he seems to take months to make, he starts teaching people who are gathering around him on the way. All those people gathering around him, they're gathering around because it's the Messiah's story and they know it and they want to see what's going on. But he's not hustling the way you'd think somebody would if they're setting out to save people. And so they gather, and when they do, this strange thing keeps happening, right, that you've studied the last three weeks, which is that Jesus starts teaching them, and he teaches them things that are pushing against their understanding of the story that they're in. The the wrinkle, the frustrating thing when you read is that everybody's so excited, like they're not listening. Everybody with a young kid or who's had young kids in this room like knows exactly. You just experienced it on Halloween, right? Where you're like, you're so excited you don't hear anything I'm saying. I could be telling you the house is on fire. And you're like, <laughs> like, and that's how they are. They're not listening to him. Now, what have you heard the last three weeks? You've heard from Dante that prayer doesn't work the way that we often think that it will. That should be a big warning to people who are like, we've prayed for the Messiah, the Messiah's coming, it's going to happen the way we want. But Dante told you, prayer doesn't work that way. God gives you what he knows is going to help you grow, not what you ask for. And then you heard from Paul, right, that those people the Messiah has come to save includes some unexpected folks. That, That list includes your enemies. And not only that, includes those who reject God their father, specifically reject him and rebel against him. I mean, if Jesus is saving everybody, including people on that list, like you wonder who he's vanquishing. Like, who's the enemy? And then you heard from Ivy last week that you must stay open to a God who isn't looking for you to guess what he's doing or to predict what he's up to, but a God who simply wants you to lay down your worries and fears and learn to trust him no matter what. He's not a puzzle for you to solve. He just wants your trust. And all of this stuff and more is part of Jesus's warnings to this crowd that this story they're so excited about is not going to unfold the way they expect it to unfold. They want a story of deliverance and triumph from Rome. They want, frankly, another Moses story. That's like one of their greatest hits. They love Moses stories. They want an exodus. But Jesus is not Moses. He's not. Jesus is the God with whom Moses wrestled. Jesus is the God that Moses doubted. And he's the God who asked Moses to spend 40 years of his life walking in faith towards a promised land that Moses would never see. Which is a way of saying this story 
is God's story, not Israel's story. And that's what makes it hard for them to understand. So how does God's story then work? What are his goals? What's this narrative? Well, in Luke 21, we see this. Jesus says to them, his disciples, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famine and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Israelites are like, oh yes, we know. This is that story again. And then he says, but before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues. Weird, synagogues are supposed to be on our team. And put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. You will bear testimony to me. And then this, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist. That feels good. We're going to win. You will be betrayed. They will put some of you to death. Doesn't sound like winning. And then, but not a hair of your head will perish. Which seems nonsensical. Stand firm and you will win life. So the crowds, maybe like us today, like the crowds that Jesus is talking to are not equipped or prepared to hear this story. But Jesus' story is not one, he couldn't be clearer here, it is not one of militaristic messianic victory. He says that war is coming, but he says the war is going to come after the Messiah is already gone. He says, you're going to get caught up in all of this conflict, but your job is not to fight it. He says, you will have to bear testimony, which if you're listening, maybe you're like, okay, I can memorize that. I'll learn to do that well. And he says, but that testimony isn't something you need to worry about ahead of time. And then he says, many of you will die, but not a hair on your head will perish. So what is Jesus' story? What kind of a Messiah is he trying to talk to them about? I think at the very heart of the gospel story is this wild, paradoxical, and essential point, which is that biblical fulfillment insists that we let go first if we're going to receive it. It insists we let go. I want to pause for a second. And I want to challenge us to do something that is hard and maybe sacrilegious. But so if you feel uncomfortable, then you can back out. But we'll see. What I want you to do, if you can, is I want you to try and imagine the mind and the heart of God. What is the problem that God has taken it upon himself to solve in the world? I'll try to put this in a story. God has made a rich and shockingly beautiful universe. And of all this universe's many wonders, human beings are the most precious to him. And we are precious for a specific reason, which is that we are reflections of him, that we are meant to love and care for each other and for the world as he does. But there is a fundamental blindness in human beings, in every single one of us, that makes us afraid of things we can't control. 
That's it. There are things we can't control, and when we encounter them, we get afraid. And in response to that fear that we feel when we are out of control, we covet power, and we hoard wealth and provision so that we can have the illusion of control again. That's what we're doing. And inevitably, these hoarders and controllers become distrustful of God and become distrustful of creation and become distrustful of each other. That's the human problem. Now, if you're God, how do you fix the damage that this fear of being out of control produces? How do you help these people that you love learn to let go of all the stuff they're clutching at so that they can feel safe? To let go of that stuff and trust this goodness of your love for them and of your provision for them. How do you let somebody clutching, how do you show them that it's okay to let go? You've done a bunch of stuff in the Bible story, right? You've tried telling them directly with Adam. Didn't work. You've tried a book of laws that would explain all this. Didn't work. You've tried setting up one nation among all other nations to exhibit a right relationship with you so that others could see and believe that it works. Like you tried like a model, like a test case, an example. And that didn't work. It's like, what is left to you? The gospel story is three words. The gospel story is God goes first. God goes first. He puts himself in Jesus at the mercy of of those fears that dominate us. He empties himself of power and of control, and he lives in the fullness of compassionate love without self-protection, without putting those walls up to defend himself. And in that, he ends up walking intentionally and deliberately towards death, which is the big bad, the big thing that we're afraid of. And he does that to prove that life is still there on the other side of it. And all along, he is telling us that if we will just follow the path he is leading us down, that he is showing us will work, if you follow that path, if we stand firm in this example instead of fighting, that we will win life. The trick, as Jesus is showing us in his very being, is that we have to let go. We cannot receive something new if our hands are still full of all the stuff that we've taken. You can't receive something new if your hands are full of all the stuff that you've grasped at and taken. So let me be as clear as I possibly can for you. You cannot find peace if you don't let go. You can't. You cannot be whole if you don't empty yourself. You cannot experience love if you are still living in fear. It is the essential struggle of all human beings. You can imagine it like walking down a path and being a fork in the road. Every human ever has walked this road. And the essential struggle of human beings is to discover at that fork that it is impossible for you to save yourself. That there is a, like you will die and you cannot fix things even if you give it your very best effort and try as hard as you can. 
That is the essential moment that every human finds, whether it's because they're experiencing the death of a loved one who they wish they could save, whether it's because they're trying to make their life into something and they're not succeeding, whether it's because they're trying to be better parents and they realize they just can't, whether like whatever it is, like you will come to the end of yourself, the limit of yourself, and the road forks, and you have two choices. And one of those choices is just to give in to hopelessness, right? To be like, everybody's like this, nothing can be done, the world is a nightmare place, like where everyone fails. That's like one of your choices. The other is to simply surrender to the infinite love of God for you, even in your failure. To say like, even at the limit of myself, I'm still loved. And that is the choice that everybody eventually faces. Naked fear or reckless and wild love. There's a famous quote from the missionary Jim Elliott you've almost certainly heard. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, it's probably an overused quotation. I feel like I've heard it in a thousand sermons myself, but also it's deeply true. Eventually, you will hit that point and your hands will be empty. Eventually, you'll come to the limit of what you can control. And when that moment comes, will you accept a gift being freely given to you or will you clench your fists around empty air and refuse it? A biblical understanding of fulfillment insists that we let go if we're going to receive. Now, Jesus spent three years of his life trying to teach just this lesson to this small group of people, like a little test case, and share this story with these 12 friends. And after three whole years of repeating the same thing to them, on the eve of the day when all this is going to finally play out, his last moment to teach them anything, when God's hands are going to be utterly empty, he's going to fully let go and allow his own son to face death. At that moment, when all is let go, and before he shows that he can pick life up again on the other side of it, Jesus sits down for this final meal and lesson with the people who are closest to him. And this is what happens. You read, the hour came, and Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And you know these verses, we say them almost every week in communion, you know the scene, but do you see the bread and the cup as fulfillment? Because it is a pretty direct metaphor in Jesus' last lesson. He says, it is as simple as God can possibly make it. What you need to be filled can only be found in me, but to get it, your cup has to be empty, and your plate has to be clear. You cannot receive what I am giving you if your cup is full and your plate's got food on it. Now, one of my favorite moments in all Luke's gospel comes two verses after this when we read, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. 
You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And even now, these disciples like don't understand. They want victory in the way they understand victory. They want the story they're used to, and they want it because they want control, which means that they're afraid. But even then, Jesus isn't unkind. He just simply says again, look at me. Real fullness requires real emptiness. The king serves. The kingdom is shared, not taken. And if you can believe it, then you can eat and drink to fullness. My last point and I'm wrapping up here, is that Luke's understanding of fulfillment challenges where we think we are in the story. The funny thing to me about that Twilight story from before is that we all think our story begins when we're weak and it ends when we're strong. That's the way our stories go, weak to strong. Like, confused, understanding. Bella is nobody, and the story is about her discovering that she's somebody. But what if this God story really is different? What if the deeper story is one where what happens is we discover that we are already somebody, and that discovery that we're somebody enables us to choose to be nobody? Or more precisely, it enables us to live so freely and so generously that others can discover that they're already somebody too. No one in this room has all of this figured out. And in my heart, that's the thing that makes church work in the first place. Is that like simply by you showing up this morning, you have admitted like, I don't know what's going on in the world. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I'm not in control. And then when we get up here and we share our stories with each other, we're admitting something else. We're admitting like, and I'm afraid all the time. I don't know what I'm doing. And then by living lives where we're eager to apologize to each other, where we're eager to repent, where we see the value and the beauty of living humbly and, and repenting to each other, we're living out this belief that we can unclench our fists from around this need for power, this need for being right all the time, and we can trust in somebody else's forgiveness of us. That's what happens when you apologize, right? You're like, I, I hope you'll forgive me. And you like put yourself out there. And so we live lives where we do that all the time. And then we come here and we receive like the bread and the cup week after week. And when we do that, we're trying our best to find ourselves in the right story. And we're putting our hope like as best we can week by week in the promise of God's fulfillment. And in the end, that's what I think church community is. It's a community of people who like are leaning on each other so that we can collectively learn to lean on Jesus. And so the last word today, and then I'm done is to simply to ask you, like, are you really willing to be here? If that's what it means to be in a church, are you really willing to be here? Are you open to it? Are you willing, if not to unclench your whole fist around the stuff that you need to feel control, are you willing to, like, loosen the grip of a finger or two in a community where you're safe just to taste and see what happens? The elements are here. The community is here. God is here, and God is so patient towards us, and there's a story that he wants us to learn 
and to find ourselves in if we're willing to hear it. I'll pray for us and then we'll continue to worship.